everyone. My name is Corey McLeod. I'm the publisher of innovationodds.com. I'd like to uh, welcome you all today to the Transparency in Government webinar, which is part of our public interest series that we'll be running this year and beyond. To kick off, I'd like to introduce some fantastic panellists that have agreed to join us today. We have Han Albee, who is the Executive Director of the Centre for Public Integrity, Marie Johnson, CEO of the Centre for Digital Business, and Carrick Ryan, the former Australian federal agent and political commentator. Thank you all for joining us. We'll have your full bios on our website. But I thought I might kick off by just asking Han, if you don't mind, at the Centre for Public Integrity, can you tell us a little bit about the centre and what it is your work is and that you're seeing particularly at the moment that might shape some of the conversation that we have? Sure, and thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which I work on and, and those around the country who are joining. I'm on Wurundjeri land here I'm in Melbourne. The Centre for Public Integrity is an independent think tank dedicated to preventing corruption, protecting the integrity of accountability institutions and eliminating the undue influence of money in politics. We established two years ago, we set up and... I'm the executive director, but I'm supported by a team of board members and committee members who are all leading experts, former judges in the areas of corruption and accountability. So the idea behind the centre, I guess, is that we need expert policy advice in this area. We need advice from the kind of people who have seen and smelled and felt and dealt with corruption at New South Wales ICAC and at um, integrity commissions around the country they're the right people to be leading policy in this space and they're the kind of people we've got involved um, in our organisation, um, as well as um, leading academics and university experts in the area. So uh, that's about us. I, I guess we've seen a, a worrying trend of, I mean, it's hard to answer what we're most worried about at the moment, but I think last year with the COVID pandemic, there was a big upward trend in the hiding of information and opaque processes and an increase in executive power leading to limits on parliamentary scrutiny and public scrutiny of decisions and, and spending. So that's probably um, one area that we've got an, an eye on at the moment is executive power and, and hidden information around crises and emergencies. And the other, I guess, is just the increasing, the increasing scale and regularity of major political scandals and allegations of corruption and misconduct that go very much uninvestigated. We're compiling research at the moment, looking at the major scandals of 2020, and there's a, a lot more than I'm sure viewers would like to see. Um, and unfortunately, none of them have been investigated or had consequence to the point that we'd like to see. So I guess they're the two main issues that are front of mind at the moment. Thank you, Han. And Maria, I'd just like to come to you. You're the CEO of the, the Centre for Digital Business You've spent decades in, in the technology sector. You're based in Canberra. Some of the areas we've talked about have really, I guess, mirrored, or we're going to talk about, uh, really mirrored the private sector in the fact that government has huge amounts of data. There's huge amounts of information, like every other organisation that's trying to work out signal to noise, how to better harness this information to provide better citizen outcomes. But there also has created a trend where the information has made things too hard to actually navigate effectively. So, what are you seeing at the moment? Is there anything specific that's sort of jumping out as ways that we're not keeping step from a government perspective as we are in the private sector? Yes, I've worked in government as a public official, right, as well as a consultant in government and I've worked in, in, in industry. And 
one of the issues that I see, it's built up over time, but I think we're really at a, a really critical point, and that is um, the public sector reliance on consultants, right? And we know that there's a direct correlation between uh, this trend and actually the failure in delivery. So when we talk about the public sector's uh, responsiveness, ability to provide information, I see that as over time, the public sector itself has lost the understanding of what a, if you like, a complex servicing system is. Now, that's not in a pejorative sense. A complex system is like, you know, the International Space Station. It's when there is a lot of components that actually need to come together to work together. And over time, the public sector has lost the capability to understand this complex servicing system. And so a big part of that is the data. And, of course, where we are now after 20 years of 30 years of digital is the public sector, if you like, is reluctant to be able to really understand what it means to have that data. And so public sector traditionally has been built on the ability to ingest data. So through, you know, you do reporting, you know, you do your BAS, the election results, et cetera, Bureau of Statistics, these are sort of ingestions of data. And the system is actually built on ingested data. It hasn't been built on the reverse to basically make data available. Now, I know there's a lot of work that has been done, you know, in open government and so forth to make data available, but it's actually not. And the system itself is becoming unnecessarily complex. And you only have to look on any government website to see the horrendous number of government forms, for example. It's almost impossible to navigate. And so just coming back to my point is that in the public sector itself, people in the public sector have lost the capability to understand what the public sector is as a complex servicing ecosystem. And so when there's questions about data and performance and so forth, you know, this really becomes an issue as to what question we're actually trying to answer. I'm going to come back to some of the things that you brought up, particularly about whether there's the ability or whether there's a will in the first place. So, and where we're pointing yes. the energy. Um, Carrick, I'd like to come to you if I could. You've got a really interesting background. You are law enforcement for many years and now you're a political commentator. If you could give us a little bit of your background, but also you're enjoying lots of public discussion at the moment and you bring with it some of that kind of practicality and pragmatism that comes from being in law enforcement, that not everything needs to be transparent, but we need to be walking a very balanced line. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks for having me as well, Carrick. Well, my background is obviously coming from the federal police. I worked in counterterrorism, and before I worked on was top secret. So we have that natural reason and a genuine reason why we didn't want to share information. And it's not a nefarious information. It's purely for operational reasons because we know as police officers that any information we share publicly will be known by the bad guys as well. So that's our, our natural reasoning. And there's also a natural inclination for police to want to know as much as possible. So we, for years, have been intercepting phone calls. Uh, we've been putting listing devices and, and in people's homes. And people have been aware of this and very conscious of this, and police secrecy is nothing new. I think what's changed over the last few years in, in, in very recent times is that relied and, and heavily rested on a large degree of public trust that the police were doing the right thing. And 
Interestingly, it doesn't take anyone from New South Wales to remember that the police from, you know, early 90s onwards were notoriously corrupt. However, they seem to have more broad public trust to, to provide power to them than they do now. I think a lot of that has to do with the, the public perception of, of how the government is using those police powers. And you've got to remember that police are, are essentially meant to be apolitical, unthinking beings. We, we will want as much access to as much information as possible and we will want to share as little as possible because that gives us the best chance of arresting people. And as, as hyperbolic and, and needlessly political as it sounds when it comes out of Peter Dutton's mouth, the people that detectives are, are usually following are terrorists, organised criminals and pedophiles, and that's who they have in their sights. The balance the government has to do is, is to try and make sure that people trust that. But as I said, for, for decades... We've had the power, if we wanted to, to, to put a listening device in your bedroom. However, most people know that if I'm not an organised criminal, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not a pedophile, it's not going to happen. So then why are suddenly people quite concerned about the idea of, of access to encrypted data? The, the, the invasiveness hasn't changed. The problem is, is now people are seeing the AFP raiding journals. We're seeing secret trials um, you know, from whistleblowers. All of a sudden, that trust has, has dissipated. And I think that that's what needs to change. People need to have that absolute faith in the government that even if it's not their, their elected, their preferred uh, prime minister, that they actually have some faith that whatever power we give our agencies and our public servants, they're going to use that in good faith. This is a question to all of you because I think Australia enjoys a good quality government. We have seen the stability throughout COVID. We know that we've been you know remarkably stable in the face of you know multiple crises and we did talk earlier a little bit about the tension point between trust and questioning when you talk about things like the growing number of FOIs that are not responded to or the fact that we have political donations the materials are in PDFs we can see all of those really obvious things that that should be more easily accessible to the public what's the danger I'm keen to hear from all of you about those sorts of things eroding public trust when it really does matter I'll kick on just because I was the last speaking and <laughs> I I think for me, it really struck a chord noticing in the USA how precarious their democracy became and, and people were starting talking about things like impeachment. How do you stop a bad faith government? And I started to look at the Australian situation here and I think there's sort of a, sort of a feeling that, oh, there's got to be some mechanism in place that if, if for whatever reason, if a prime minister or a government started acting you know, with, against our best interests. There'd be something in place in our constitution or something that would prevent this occurring. And the deeper you look, you realise our constitution is a very simple document. And, and what it has, and, and the most obvious thing that we have in place is our democratic power. That every three years or so, the Australian people have the capacity to say, look, you, you haven't done a good job, you've acted corruptly, or you've done something uh, improperly, and therefore we're going to vote you out. And to be really honest, I think that's the, the best way to handle it. The threshold for removal of our democratic leaders should be very high. It should be up to us. However, that all relies on the idea of an informed electorate, that if the people don't go into an election fully aware of all these possible corruption, what our politicians have been up to in the past three years, then that failsafe, that trigger to protect our democracy, all of a sudden falls over. And so that's why it's so important that at the fourth estate, uh, our journalists are able to obtain all that information for us and not hit brick wall, not hit dead end. And we have to feel safe that, look, if this government was up to something, it would come out. There'd be a journalist that would find out. And I think when people see these FOIs being rejected and, and we're, we're having the Prime Minister giving non-answers or refusing to answer questions, all of a sudden it makes us realise that 
we're in the dark now. How am I going to make that informed choice if you let to do? And I might come to you. So Carrick brought up an interesting point, one that's obviously close to, to my heart, um, the role of the media. And if the media is not sort of resource to be able to ask those questions and people are relying on their own interactions with government to be able to inform views and, and public discourse. What is it that you're seeing at the centre? Yeah, I think it, it's a good point. And just going back to the original question, I think when there's a lack of information and public scrutiny, it may be that there's a perception in the public that government's hiding actions and spending decisions and policy decisions. I think, you know, we can all be proud of our democracy here in Australia. We've got a lot that have seen us through hard times and I think our institutions are strong, our democracy is strong. But is that perception in the public that has the ability to erode public trust? Because if the information's not there and they can't see it, then who's to tell whether something has gone wrong and, and who can be assured that decisions are being made in the public interest? And I think the media, coming to your later question, I think the media has a big role to play there in making sure information is available, creating open discourse. And there's worrying trends, which, again, leads to a, a perception of corruption and a perception of undue influence and a perception that government is hiding. You know, when there's police raids on journalists' offices and the journalists become scared of doing their job properly, when investigative journalists aren't properly funded and when media organisations are more worried about clicks on their website and social media advertising than they are about getting the right stories, then, you know, then there's a perception that we're just being fed good news stories as opposed to the stories that count. And also I think, you know, the amalgamation of our media industry, which is supported by government obviously through the media ownership laws, but the amalgamation so that we've only got one or two sources of information and most of them lead back to uh, Rupert Murdoch. It's not the kind of democracy that I want to live in. And I think independent journalism supporting media companies to do their job and doing that not just as consumers but as government through a legal setting where where these monopolies and duopolies are, are unpicked I think is a, is a big priority in, in terms of media and public information. You won't find any arguments from me on that hand. Marie, can I just come to you? You um, submitted a submission last week on matters around the NDIS and reading one of the stories that we actually covered in Innovation Oz, it, it seemed to be that some of the you know, technologies that are being applied or talked about in terms of pilots are things like blockchain and um, facial recognition and some of those sorts of technologies that we you know, can be highly controversial. And then with both Han and Carrick talking about issues of perception, particularly when it comes to not making information easily available when people are forming views on, you know, government and elected officials, and we're now talking about trials of very controversial technologies as applied to people with disability, suddenly I think there's a huge chasm between the trust that we have that those technologies are really going to serve the people they're supposed to. Keen for your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is um, a really important area of ethics. And one of the things that um, sort of leading up to this, this discussion, I just really wanted to talk about was um, over many years, we've had independent reviews on capability in the public sector. ANAO reports, I mean, the 30 review and so forth, and they all say the same thing. And a lot of that is around public sector capability and this massive deficiency as to what is digital, right, and all things digital. 
ethics is front and centre of that, and co-design, I believe, is front and centre. So when we talk about the role of media platforms, and I would even say the role of big tech, within the public sector, there is an increasing reliance not only on consultants, but on the, if you like, the marketing statements of big tech, name any of them. And so, you know, here's a biometrics facial recognition solution, perhaps, you know, marketed by a particular company and the public sector buy that as a, as, as a technology. What is not well applied, and, and I think this is where there's a gap, is what does that mean for ethics in different areas of our public administration and where there are additive impacts of these algorithms? So this is becoming more and more part of our service delivery infrastructure whether people might say, oh, we only just tried it. It is not something we've got planned in the future. You can guarantee that blockchain, biometrics and other other types of um, algorithm-driven services are part of the future, whether or not it's stated at the moment, but they will become part of the future. And so what I was concerned about is do we truly understand the additive impacts of these algorithms on different community groups of people with disability who may themselves not fully understand it and most people don't. And so what does that mean from an ethics point of view? Do people really understand that um, they are now subject to lifelong monitoring and control just to be able to access services? I don't think that's part of the deal, right? So when we talk about public sector capability, I think there's some really fundamental questions. And just to finish off on this, I also perhaps would like a a bit of a discussion about what is the traceability of ethics? So if a company such as IBM says that they're now not going to undertake R&D and sell biometrics or facial recognition to law enforcement and Australian government will buy facial recognition, whether from IBM or from another company, I actually believe that the companies themselves have a moral responsibility to ensure how are those going to be used. You know, it's not just a clean hands anymore. So I think this is um, this really plays into this whole space about trust, you know, and it's not just enough for the government to say, you know, we are or are not using it. This is becoming more and more part of our lot and uh, in service delivery. It's starting with the most vulnerable really needs to be something that is handled very, very carefully. And ethics has got to be part of that. Eric, you've obviously had sort of exposure to the way that those sorts of technologies are applied within the context of law enforcement. We're now going to see, as Marie rightly points out, them affecting our lives more broadly in, in decades and generations to come. What do we need to be thinking about in terms of judicial oversight and ethics traceability, as you put, Marie? There's a lot to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing to be aware of, and, and, and Marie sort of really touched upon it there, is that especially with all these big tech companies, they are taking it upon themselves because they, they have a public image. Uh, companies like, for what it's worth, as an Australian law enforcement, so trying to get information from the US big tech companies is actually ridiculously hard. But that's primarily at the moment due to the US tech law because they, they hold that information on there. If I want to try and get their information from your Facebook account, I have to uh, convince the Attorney General here to approach the FBI, who will then serve a warrant on Facebook. And then Facebook, obviously, you know, someone like Facebook has that amazing clout. 
the problem, and, and we've had presentations with people like Google, for instance, who want to be responsible, uh, you know, executive corporations. They want to help law enforcement. But the big issue they have is whilst we put our hands up and say, look, we're good guys, we're going after terrorists, you know, and, and that was genuinely what we were trying to do. At the same time, you'll have other governments putting their hand up. So you'll have the Saudi Arabian government saying, we're going after terrorists, uh, our terrorists are atheists. Um, you know, it, it's very hard for these tech companies then to say, oh, we're going to let, uh, we're going to give a backdoor purely to the Australian government to, to get into this encrypted messaging, uh, but we're not going to let the Russian or the Turkish government do so. So this is this is the problem, and the, and the tech companies, I think, for a large part, a lot of these tech companies don't really care what the Australian government wants. I think we've seen that in quite clear, uh, you know, representation through the current media laws. Um, so... I think that the issue isn't so much the big companies. I think you'll have smaller companies. There are certain capabilities that I'm aware of that, that Australian law enforcement will be using, which was really helpful to us and, and 100% led to arrests of, of terrorists that were trying to kill people. But at the same time, I'm aware of dictatorial governments using that same technology. So we just have to be very aware that pressuring, you know, Apple, for instance, to be able to provide unlocking phones and all these things that we want to do with the best of intentions when we leave and set that precedent, it means the Chinese government, the Turkish government, the Russian government, all these other governments will have plausibly that same access and the, the human rights ramifications of that are, are, are pretty huge. Just wanted to just point in, I think we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but on one hand, we've got really obvious areas where technology is not being applied to identify patterns, whether it's political donations, things like sports rorts, the other hand, we've got things that are happening within the community. Robo debts, obviously, are very recent in people's minds, where technology's overstepped to a huge extent. What will it take, given that a lot of the reasons why I'm assuming we're not applying technology to help transparency of these things like sports rorts or political donations, etc., to get over that short-termism that we actually think that we have public trust in government, that that's something worth taking a longer-term view of? What will it take to get there? I mean, this is the million-dollar question, but um, keen for your thoughts. I think, I mean, we've spoken about it before, but I think people need to be looking at these government, you know, allegations of government misconduct and, and really taking it to the ballot box. And I think until people demand better information from government and better conduct and, and higher levels of responsibility, you know, governments are going to continue to believe that they can get away with whatever they want. and. Unfortunately, I think politicians at the moment are acting as if they can get away with anything and taking pretty minor precautions, if any, to maybe just slightly shuffle your cabinet around or slightly, you know, do a Senate inquiry and she'll be right kind of response as opposed to in the past where I think governments took greater precautions in areas where they were found to be involved in misconduct or where there were allegations of corruption. And I think public expectation has a lot to do with that. You know, we need to stop accepting the current state of play because before too long it'll just become the status quo and we need to make sure that doesn't happen. We've talked a little bit about political capital. Maybe we're talking about trust capital now. Carrick, you mentioned, you know, a bit earlier that a lot of the things that at the moment are very difficult to see or understand actually aren't that big a deal, but it's it's the you know, it's the optics or the perception that creates that starts to undermine those trust, the trust that we do have. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, is, is that police have had powers, for instance, for a long time, and we've been okay with that. It, it's, it's when we start having that lack of trust in, in, in government. 
Um, just, just also to extend on what, what Handa says, I agree 100% that it needs to become a political issue. If people don't make it an issue which they're prepared to vote on, um, then it, it won't be an issue. We see with, with things like climate change, people say they care about, are they willing to, enough to decide their vote? Uh, my advice is, and I've said this to any Labor person that will, will listen to me, is they need to make the federal ICAC their, their platform. Don't pretend that corruption doesn't exist in the Labor government. Of course it does. Wherever there's power, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's got to be corruption. There's going to be people doing the wrong things. The solution they need to present is 100%, this is the issue. They're going to present a mechanism to prevent it in the future. They're going to present a mechanism to ensure that their government is more transparent. That, that is my advice and how we affect that change. Um, perhaps, for all we know, maybe there's reasons within the Labor Party that they don't want to press on and, and, and achieve a retrospective federal ICAC. And if that's the case, then we have to really rely on, on independence. I know Zali Stegel has been quite vociferous about the need for a federal ICAC. We need to make this something that really matters to us. We, we, we need to make it something that's saying, if you want our vote, we want accountability, we want transparency, and we want a federal ICAC. Marie and hand to both of you, anyone that has a crystal ball about what the likelihood of a, a federal ICAC is in our, our future, near or longer term? Oh, look, I agree with Carrick that um, transparency must become a political issue or agenda for, for election, just like we're seeing at the moment with, if you like, the women's issue. <laughs> it's always been there. It's been there forever. And now, you know, um, it's just political at the moment, but it actually must become a strategic agenda. And I think transparency is the same. Transparency and, and trust go hand in hand. It will be trust that wins the election. Transparency has to come along, yeah, is, 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 is part of that. And perceptions are so powerful. And um, I agree there needs to be an ICAC because otherwise they're just words. It actually must become actionable. And um, as painful as some of this stuff this stuff might be, it actually must become actionable. And I think that's what people are really looking for. Not everything is corruption. Some things are just unacceptable practices, right, unacceptable in the terms of over-reliance on consultants, you know, and the hollowing out of capability in the APS. That gives a certain perception around trust. It's not necessarily corruption, but it plays into the public's lack of trust when they see these things happen. So, yeah. I, I think so, and in, in even some of the stuff we see, there's a, a current large project, like of DXP, and it's a public sector union coming out saying, well, why don't the people who have been selected on that panel need to remain confidential? What is it in the public interest that means that those companies that have been, you know, engaged so when you start seeing things like that happening, there's almost a level of, um, I don't know, the, the need to know has sort of, you know, left the building in terms of what is in public interest paying for large government projects. It's not just the need to know, it's the, the public's right to know. I think we live in a democracy, we elect our leaders to represent us, but we also pay our taxes and we pay our taxes so that our, the most vulnerable in our society can get good services so that roads and hospitals are built in the best way and, and so that health and education are available to everyone. So I think, again, going back to people's expectations, we need to sort of step into our role as citizens in a democracy as opposed to looking at it as accepting the crumbs from a system that might not be serving our interests. Just going back to the Integrity Commission, I think it, it does go back, to, again, to perceptions. If you've got nothing to hide, 
you shouldn't be afraid of a National Integrity Commission or a federal ICAP, as it's called. But I think the public trust involved in seeing that there's an independent, and independence is key, an independent oversight agency that can and will investigate allegations and expose them to the public is key to increasing public trust and the perception that ministers and, and parliamentarians and the public service more broadly has got nothing to hide. And if they've got nothing to hide, then, you know, the Integrity Commission will have lots of time on its hands. But I think this delay, and we've had over two years now since the government announced it would set up an Integrity Commission, delay increases the perception that they don't want independent oversight and that they do have things to hide. You know, we're not making allegations of corruption specifically, but saying, well, if you don't have things to hide and if you do um, believe in the public interest, you'll also believe in the people's right to know, and that includes the exposure of these investigations. The model that Christian Porter put forward in his um, Integrity Commission proposal had pretty deep flaws, and a lot of it is around this perception of corruption because his model does not include the ability to make reports to the public on investigations and also does not include the ability to hold public hearings as part of its investigation. So it would be the same as a royal commission being announced without the public being able to know anything about the investigations. We know how people would feel about that. So not just the the delay in, in establishing the Integrity Commission, but also its design creates the perception in the public that the government's got something to hide and that it can't be trusted. Well, sorry, you go, Carrick. So I was just going to bounce off something Han said there, which is really important, uh, the, the fact of, of that contrast between need to know versus right to know. Because obviously, from having worked in a government department, the natural first inference or no, think that first inclination is we don't want to share information when you're working in a government body because there's danger involved in that. If you start spreading information and having absolute transparency, there's, there's always a way of having an argument with some sort of merit somewhere on the line of saying, yeah, it'd probably be better if we just didn't make that information available on a website. However, ultimately what trumps that, and in all instances, it's very easy to come up with an argument. The obvious example is, is Brian Houston's, uh, also Scott Morrison refusing to disclose whether Brian Houston was asked to attend a dinner in, in the USA. And, and we have this ridiculous stance on, on the, uh, rejecting the freedom of information request, but everyone knew that clearly the, the American government had all but disclosed the fact that Morrison had asked him to, to attend. It was the most needlessly secretive affair and yet he was able to, to justify rejecting that FOI on, on national security ground. Now, you could almost pose an argument that there'd, there'd be some sort of merit to it. However, clearly on that public right to know, it's something as simple as that, it overshadows that. And then I think that really needs to be considered. Need to know is something that happens within a, 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 an organisation like the police. But the public right to know is so much more important by democracy. I just uh, wanted to, to finish up on, actually, we do have a question here. This is from Dennis. What can be done about the diminishing independence of the courts with magistrates, judges and court officials ignoring the law and rubber stamping corruption? I don't know if there's specific examples there, but any general, I know um, Han, obviously the Centre for Public Integrity has a lot of former judges and QCs and, and senior figures in the in the legal sector. I don't know if there's a straightforward answer to that question. Happy to answer that. I think Australia is pretty lucky in that our judiciary remains pretty independent of along partisan lines. So there are concerns, particularly in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, that partisan appointments are being made. 
but by and large, I think our judiciary does a good job and manages to stay uh, independent of government. But it's not something that we should take for granted. And we need only look to the US where the Supreme Court is very much divided along party political lines to make sure that that's something that we protect and that we hold our attorney generals, whoever it is, you know, in any government, uh, that we hold them to account to make sure that they make appointments in the public interest. So I think it's something to keep an eye on and certainly not to be taken for granted. But I think to date, you know, there's only a couple of examples, you know, where a judge has maybe not been appointed for the right reasons or has made mistakes. But, you know, by and large, I think we can be proud of our judiciary and our court system. We've got time for a couple of questions from the audience. I might just ask one broad question. Marie, you mentioned some of the stuff that's going on about gender at the moment. Once that sort of erupted, it just seems to keep going and there will be, I would expect, wholesale cultural change as a result of what's been happening over the last month. I think the Royal Commission into Financial Services, when it eventually got there, has created the beginnings of wholesale cultural change and the role of reg tech and data like has been used to make sure that the financial services sector is fit for purpose. What's it going to take? How far down this slow road will we get to where, as we've all been talking about, the public refuses to accept the lack of transparency when it is necessary? The way I look at this, this is about really deeply building or rebuilding public sector capability. And um, I, I look at it as this is like nation building capability again right? It is really that serious. This is going to take a decade or more, which is why I think the ICAC actually is so so important. And as I said before, we know what needs to be done. There's been a mountain of reviews about this. You mentioned before about, you know, the opaqueness about what uh, consulting firms are doing work on the new MyGov and, and, and all of that. So one of the issues with that is not only the opaqueness about that, but the public has a right to know that over the long term, the public sector has the skills and the capability to take that capability that has been developed and to be the, um, the, the caretakers of it over time. Now, with the hollowing out of the public sector capability, where's that knowledge? Sometimes it's not even in the consulting firms, right? It's just dissipated. And yet it's such critical infrastructure to our democracy. And so the public has a right to know that within the public sector, there is capability that can safeguard that and can ask the questions about how that capability is used and developed. And I think that is, a, that, is a, that is a really, really big gap at the moment, which is why where we are in our, if you like, digital landscape is actually very concerning. You know, just the other day there was that major cyber attack, you know, into Channel 9 and into the Parliament and so forth. So these things aren't being spoken about in a connected way. The public sector capability, people generally would say, that's my expectation of the public sector, that they do these things and that it's not outsourced to consultants or outsourced in some other way. That one of the pillars of our democracy is a strong, independent and appropriately skilled public sector for the decades ahead. Now, we have got this massive, massive gap. Even just in recent times, I've had people say to me, what is the ABR, so the Australian Business Register? Right? That's been around 20 years. That cyber is for the IT people and so forth. So these are some of the really major within the public sector mind shifts that need to be happening and it needs to happen with this shift back to the public sector, policy development, analysis, critical thinking, and that's going to take years but it needs to start. 
One thing I would like to see is um, David Thody's review was launched, I think, just as the bushfires started and then we had COVID and I think a relaunch and a relook at all of that work would be a, a really good place to start because there's a lot of thought obviously put into that. Carrick and Han, final thoughts from you both. I'll just quickly touch that first off on Dennis's question. Um, I agree with Han as much as I probably clash with judges more than anything because in, in a large degree the courts are usually designed to, to favour or, or protect the defendant. I think we need to be careful not to confuse. Judges are ultimately meant to be unemotive. They're not meant to be making unethical decisions, just as police are. When we see police raiding journalists' homes and we see judges putting suppression orders on, uh, on, you know, on court cases, they are reacting to the law. And so if we are unhappy with that, the law needs to change. So we need to put protections in, in front of whistleblowers. We need to have protections for journalists because... The, the police and, and the judges just do as, as they're basically singing off a hymn sheet. They have to follow the law as, as it leads. So, yeah, that, that's what we need to do. We need to make this a political issue. We've seen that, that throughout there. There hasn't been one single issue. We've got media ownership. We've got our awareness of what's going on. The small little things that decay, and, and we have to constantly be making as much noise as possible about this because it's all good and well that the people here and, and watching this, the fact that you, you've dialed into this means you have some sort of awareness and some sort of interest in it. The hard part is is getting in touch with those people that only think about politics 30 seconds before they enter the voting room. We need them to, to really be aware of, of why it's important, why transparency and accountability is important. Just as as, as Marie said, that there's been a lot of you know females especially that have been awoken uh, by this current movement, all of a sudden they're engaged in the topic and, and it's, it matters to them. I think we can plausibly see some women that have in the past voted LNP now going, well, based on this issue, on this one issue, I'm going to move my vote. We need that to, to spread to other issues. Some people that would in, in the past go, ordinarily I would have voted for the LNP, but based on this one issue, the fact that they're not doing a federal ICAC, the fact that they're not transparent, that's going to change my vote. They're the people that we need to convince to think that way. And final thoughts? Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that we know what can be done in this area. The solutions are there. The Centre for Public Integrity's developed pretty detailed policy briefs on money and politics and accountability institutions and how to design and set up an integrity commission and how to make executive lawmaking you know, more accountable to parliament. So we know what can be done on these issues. And equally, we know how to make information available to the public. You know, the technology is there and we need only look to the states. Um, New South Wales and Queensland have got much more regular, even almost live um, reporting of political donations. You know, it's not that hard and it's happening right here in Australia at a state level. But equally at a regulatory level, you know, New South Wales and Queensland have got much stronger political donations, regulations, you know, things like ministerial diaries are, are made public Queensland and uh, they have strong integrity commissions. So I think, you know, it's not that hard. We know how to do it. It's more about taking it seriously and, and making sure that the Commonwealth Government is aware, not only that people's expectations are that they're transparent and taking corruption seriously and the risk of corruption seriously, but also that having that big gap between what's possible and also what's being done at a state level and what's being done at a Commonwealth level is no longer acceptable. 
Thank you very much. I'd like to thank uh, all of the guests today. Carrick Ryan, uh, former Australian Federal Agent and political commentator, suggests that you follow Carrick on Facebook, as I do. Lots of interesting food for thought. Han Albee, who is the Executive Director of the Centre for Public Integrity. Again, great, very insightful Facebook page that I've also been following. Marie Johnson, who is the CEO of the Centre for Digital Business, recommend following Marie on LinkedIn. I'd like to thank all of you for the discussion today, which has been part of our public interest series, Transparency in Government. Thank you to all the panellists today for joining us. 